Yo, yo, what's up, y'all? Guys, it has been one hell of a week. We have so much to get to. I don't even, I had trouble starting on where we were going to go with this. We have Mizzou and everything happening over there with their athletic department and their sanctions. We got Super Bowl week. We're going to look at past Super Bowls. We're going to talk about MLB free agency, where that's headed. Uh, so much to dive into here. Okay, like always, I'm going to make it uh, snippy, snappy. Let's get to it. Episode three of the podcast. I thought I'd begin with talking about the weather because most of us are experiencing frigid cold temperatures and I certainly have been as well. It was negative six yesterday and I hope all of you stayed warm and I hope you are experiencing warmer temperatures now. It's much uh, much warmer. It's in the 30s here in Kansas City. I hope you all are experiencing some warmth and I couldn't help but kick us off there because what I was looking at yesterday, snow trickling down outside my apartment windows, and I just thought of Major League Baseball and free agency and how dead it is and how we're at a point where it really just sucks that market demands um, and realistic expectations aren't being equaled on behalf of players and the teams. Now, I certainly think that everything is going to turn out okay. I'll get to that in a minute. But it really kind of is just becoming frustrating that it seems, while most franchises are just trying to be smart, there are a few out there that I think are kind of more into the the business and the game inside the business. We often say the game on the field, how that's a business. Well, the business upstairs, that's also a game. And with them, I think some of these Ivy League guys that are now front office executives, some of the ones that have just now entered the fray uh, or entered, uh, you know, the industry, the 30-year-olds, not the Theo Epstein's. He's been in here for quite a, quite a long time. But the ones that are the younger, like thir- mid-30-year-olds, these guys almost like are competitive in the sense that they say, well, you know, how good of a team can I put on the field within my restraints, such as like payroll and positional demand, uh, positional availability, uh, my own market that I work within. How viable of a product can I put on the field given my restraints and not so much how close is the team to actually winning a championship? The old school guys like Theo, Mike Rizzo, even Jerry Depoto, who used to be a player, he's the uh, Mariners GM, I think they want to win. But there's some of this where it's just like – isn't the whole point to compete for a championship? Like, isn't that why we're here? Like, can't you just buck up and pay a few extra million dollars? Like, you can go over a little bit. There's there's stupid, and then there's overpaying, but also getting what you need. And overpaying for something you need is okay. Of course, it's it's all specific. It depends on what terms exactly we're agreeing to. But I will say I'm a little... Uh, I'm a little upset about that because it seems like there are some general managers that are here just to like see how good they can challenge themselves within what they have to deal with. And the product on the field and how close they are to a championship isn't exactly what they're in it for. Not all of them, but some. But I also think it's a disconnect between agent and franchise and kind of how to operate. And I had a friend contact me and he left me a voicemail, Bentley Green. This is what he had to say and some of the questions he had surrounding Major League Baseball, and I will play off that and finish up my thoughts 
on free free agency here in 2018. Hey, Pete, it's Bentley. Uh, I enjoyed uh, enjoying the show. Really, uh, really enjoyed your uh, 16 balk in a in a little league story. Um, I'm I'm sure Gabe is very frustrated with your with your comments back to the coach. But uh, I'm gonna keep it baseball here. I uh, wanted to ask you about a little bit about the uh, MLB free agency. And uh, we saw last year guys like Arietta, Darvish, and J.D. Martinez sign very late into free agency, even including our uh, soon-to-be disaster, Greg Holland. And, uh, you know, this year we got over 100 guys unsigned as of the end of January, including so-called generational talent, which I agree with that statement to be true in Harper Machado, but nonetheless, they're still unsigned. Um, you know, now I understand most teams can't really do 10-year contracts and they don't usually work at all, you know. But as it's been pointed out time and again, they're 26. They're not 30. They're not 31 like Pujols was when we went after him and the Angels signed him for, what, $250 million. But, you know, when you, you see when teams are – they're often more and more, it seems like, to go for these team-friendly contracts, which – you know, as as that's exactly what they are. They're team friendly. So I was kind of wondering what what will uh, what will players be able to do to get the leverage back? Do you see a lockout coming, or maybe some sort of compromise before that? I know some teams, you know, like I said, they can't afford a ten year, but even you know, get down to even an eight year, three hundred million dollar contract. Most teams can't work with that, but still, you think there'd be way more of a bidding war when with top guys like this. You even see guys like Marvin Gonzalez still out there, a guy who can be pretty much put on any team and any part of the field and would almost would almost make anyone better. And, you know, I just kind of wonder, is this a problem that can be fixed if maybe if teams concede the uh, ability to tank, if then the players can earn back their money, or are we just going to see a stalemate there? Yeah, I know that was kind of long-winded, but kind of interesting is watching it as fans and you know you see how frustrated players are getting especially vocalizing it now on on social media so i was kind of wondering what you would think about it like i said enjoying the show and uh thanks a lot man keep it up okay thank you bentley bentley thank you so much for uh that two minutes uh baseball talk man i don't want you to ever apologize for going too long that wasn't even that wasn't long enough i was i was ready to listen to you for you for uh, for five more minutes. So thank you for the call. Keep them coming. Uh, here's what I'll say. I do not think a strike is coming because I think soon there will be an agreement between agents and teams on how free agency is going to work. And this is how I think it's going to have to work. Shortstop and third base. I'll begin here. Shortstop and third base are probably a position of an abundance of really good players. I could go through the names, Alex Bregman, Nolan Arenado, Carlos Correa, Frankie Lindor, you know them all. But if you just go down each team, you would see various players that are all good or great. Basically, satisfaction for a lot of franchises to where they say, we're rolling with this guy. Uh, we need to get production at different positions to field a good team. Well, that's Manny Machado's position, shortstop and third base. And Manny Machado is 
at the top of this entire free agent market. Everybody's playing off him. And the thing is, is that Manny Machado is asking for everything. Manny Machado wants 10 years. He wants the highest average annual value. He wants to win, and he wants to play shortstop. Well, when you ask for everything, guess what? The pool of your team is going to shrink down. That's when you're left with the Phillies and the White Sox. Now, if you start to give a little bit, like say, I'm going to give up um, winning, well, then that's when I could see the Arizona Diamondbacks entering the fray. That's when I could see the Texas Rangers entering the fray. If you say, well, I'm not giving up, uh, I'm not giving up shortstop, well, that's when, you know, the Astros are out of the picture. And obviously they're out of the picture for everything. But you see where I'm going here. Based on what you give and take, the pool size changes each time. So if you're just going to sit here and just take everything, and I'm not saying it's selfish. Okay, I understand, like, you want to you wanna do what's best for you and everything, but it's just like the pool size is going to narrow. Where it gets unique is that when you're with the Phillies and the Sox, you would expect, like, this bidding war, but the Phillies don't know if they want Bryce or Manny. And Bryce doesn't even know what he wants. So what you have is the White Sox sitting there with a one, uh, 175 seven-year offer, and they say, well, we're not going to bid against ourselves. And you just have nothing. Because shortstop and third base are set for so many teams. Manny's asking for everything. Bryce plays off Manny. And then the middle and lower class play off Bryce. So you just have a whole lot of lower-level guys. you got a whole bunch of one-year Neil Walker deals with the Miami Marlins, and that's it. So with that being said, it's Manny Machado's reps, I think, holding everything up. You can't just take, take, take anymore. This isn't 2015. This isn't David Price, Red Sox, 219 mil over, was it seven years? Obviously, everything is relative to to position everything else, but just the idea of take, take, take. Like, the days of front office is just saying, oh, okay, you, you play this position, this is the demand, Okay, we'll just pay it, whatever. Like, you have to give them something, and it the days of mega contracts all-encompassing are just done, I think. Front offices are too smart. Bill James, in his tweet that said all players are replaceable, look, I mean, you can interpret that as you, how you wish. He's a sabermetrician, okay? The, the data guy, this is how I'm going to interpret it. Everybody in theory is replaceable because we can crunch the numbers and we can assign the proper value to everyone, dollar amount. And he's right. Given 25 roster spots, in theory, I can take all the lower level guys, what they do, and piece together a team to replace Mike Trout. Now, is it smart to take the lowest level of guys amongst 25 roster spots to get 10 war? No, 10 war is not enough. So with Mike Trout, you understand how the variations and the resources that you have make it harder to replace him. But in theory, he is replaceable. And all the way down you go, everybody's replaceable, so you can't just ask for everything. If you're Manny Machado, um, it's going to take some more give on the agent's parts. You can't operate like you did a few years ago. It's time to catch up with the rest of the front office. Whenever they do that, then we'll see more free, agent, free agency uh, getting used here in Major League Baseball. All right, staying on cue with the business side of sport, let's shift to the NFL because Roger Goodell 
address the public for the first time since conference championship weekend, and chief among the topics that he fielded at his annual press conference was the game down in New Orleans against the Rams. He talked about that, and he fielded questions on a variety of topics. And it's important to understand, I think, with Roger Goodell on what he is. Because he certainly isn't what I think a lot of people believe him to be. He is not a liaison between the public and the owners. He's not even a liaison between the players and the owners. What he is is a representative of each of the 32 men and women that own NFL franchises. He speaks on their behalf probably 90% of the time anytime he answers a question. So every time I see Roger Goodell speak, particularly at this press conference, I understand that what he's saying is a collective agreement among 32 owners. A lot of people, mainly media members, journalists, reporters that were there and are covering this, are upset because he left everything ambiguous, left everything in typical Goodell fashion, non-answers to questions that, uh, that they shot at him. And I just don't understand why people get upset. One, he's answering on the behalf of others. And I get that that's the face that people are going to put the, uh, put the NFL to because they don't know exactly which NFL owners think what. But number two, even with these questions, these questions that are about the President of the United States, Colin Kaepernick, the Rooney Rule, officials and instant replay, marijuana and its place in the game, and domestic violence amongst its players, these subjects are no gimmies. These are not softball questions. These are hard-pressing topics. If you're to favor one way or the other, Man, these could be some polarizing headlines tagged to the NFL. I can get why the speaker for NFL owners would remain neutral on just about every one of these, where they would leave things very subjective and leave interpretation to right smack dab in the middle. I get that. And I also get that soon enough, I'll know the answer to where they reside on these. I don't need it straight from the mouths of the representative of the NFL. Because ultimately, actions tell me everything. If there's a change to instant replay in March or sometime in the spring, then I'll know. If they think the Rooney Reel is not effective and they change it, then I'll know. If Colin Kaepernick somehow makes his way back into the league and there's a shift in philosophy and how rosters are constructed, then I'll know. I don't get all up in arms because Roger Goodell doesn't answer the questions that reporters ask or even questions that I want to know. I don't get upset about it because ultimately, actions will tell me everything. What do I know about the NFL? That it's bottom line, baby. Money, money, money. That's what I do know, because that's a consistent theme with all these. How does this affect money? That helps me derive where the NFL is probably going. But even if I'm wrong, actions will tell me everything. I don't get upset at non-answers. Non-answers are a way to cover your ass, and I get that. Especially when we're throwing these topics at them.
I think Roger Goodell is getting tired of this, frankly. Can you imagine what he did this morning? He probably woke up, put on that suit, rubbed his eyes, and let out a big, deep sigh. He thought back to all the conversations he had with owners. He's looking at his script, saying, this is what I say here, this is what I say there. And he's probably got a lot memorized to this point, because a lot of the answers are the same. He's probably sick of being the first man through the wall for the NFL. Not like he signed up for it. But a guy who made $40 million at one point, it used to be public record, but now since the NFL has lost its nonprofit status, we don't know, but surely it's in the same neighborhood. For all the negative backlash that he's gotten, and sure, a lot of it's self-inflicted, I get it. He's probably saying after this 2020 collective bargaining agreement, after he negotiates that or helps negotiate it, he's probably saying, I'm out of here. I don't want any part of this. He's achieved his lifelong dream. It's been well documented. Since his beginning days, he's always wanted to be commissioner of the NFL. He's achieved that. And largely it will go down as one that broke the trust between public, players, and the owners. But he has done some good things. Revenue is on track for over $25 billion in eight years. Foreign relations never been better. The shield is everywhere. There soon will probably be a team in London. We're playing games there already. We're going to Mexico, and China is in the works, I hear. Roger Goodell has done some good things. He's done a lot of bad things. Ultimately, his legacy will reflect that, and ultimately, we're going to get the answers to the questions that we want. Forgive Roger Goodell, he's getting pelted, but ultimately, actions will tell us everything. It'll be here soon enough. A quick little two minutes on athletes and their conduct. Why are they the most sensitive people ever now? They are all-time sensitive. The reason I bring this up is because of Derek Carr last week. He clapped back at a couple of ESPN analysts who I don't really hold in that higher regard. I don't think they're that great. I don't think they're that qualified. Well, they're qualified in some regard. But as far as knowledge and intellect on the game, I can see where Derek Carr would get upset. And basically, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, he said, Max Kellerman, Stephen A. Smith are not qualified to talk about what's going on inside the locker room and how I conduct myself as a player, as a teammate. Only my coaches and teammates know that. Those inside the facility. I would agree Derek Carr has that point. But my gosh, why is it with athletes? And this is just a recent example. So I don't mean to single him out too bad, but this is what triggered me to think this. Why do athletes think anytime someone speaks critically of them, media members or fans, that everyone's a hater? Like, nobody hates anyone. What we're doing is we're evaluating your play and your team's play. We have an interest in what you do. Your job is under a spotlight because we like what you do. We love what your job is, and we like to watch it. So therefore, we praise you, we critique you, and sometimes we just sit back and enjoy it. Probably could do a little bit more of the, of the latter there. But in totality, that is part of what sport is it's under a microscope 
People talk about what needs to change, what's good about it, what's bad about it. And athletes need to get a grasp that nobody hates anyone. We're just critiquing your play. And a lot of times, your Twitter timeline, your Twitter mentions are not reflective of what people think of you. When you search your name on your smartphone, when you're on Instagram, and 12 people say, you suck, that is not indicative of what the masses often say. Now, I'm obviously talking about a couple of different scenarios here, but largely, I think athletes are at an all-time high of being sensitive to those around them. And frankly, it doesn't make much sense, does it? In the information age that we have, the world of 30 for 30 documentaries, chronicling the pitfalls of those who didn't conduct themselves as a professional athlete in the highest regard, those that fell short, that could have done better of understanding the elements around what they do as a professional athlete, being under that spotlight, all the stories that are told, the mentors that some of these guys have been around since high school at their seven-on-seven in Jackson, Mississippi. I mean, it's no surprise what professional sports are. Media says you suck. Fans say you suck. Stop getting upset that your job is of interest to everyone everywhere. It's just the way it is, Derek Carr and the rest of the NFL. We're going to talk about it. We have an interest in it. If you don't like it, maybe pro sports aren't for you. All right, I'm sorry about that. I don't know. Derek Carr, you just get me going, and I'm sorry to poke at you a little bit, but it's something that's been on my mind for quite a while. Um, I'm going to shift to continuing to talk about athletes, but more so where they begin than where they end up in the pro uh, scope of things. Today, it was announced that Missouri, where I'm a graduate of, University of Missouri in Columbia, they, uh, they had some sanctions put down on them for academic dishonesty, uh, misconduct from a staffer of theirs, and they found that the departments of athletics were complicit as well, and uh, they had the hammer thrown down on them. And there's been a lot of uproar from the university. They are going to appeal the sanctions, and fans and former students and current students are not happy about it. And I'm, I'm with them. I think it's very malicious. I think it's way too strong for the penalties that they uh, that they committed. And I'm not going to get into that so much. I'm not going to compare it to this, compare it to that. Like, every situation is different, so I'm not really big on comparables all the time. I'm more just going to talk about how this is the reason I'm not a college sports guy. I consume it at the most, like, basic level. I sit down on Saturdays, if we're talking about football or basketball for that matter, I sit down on Saturdays and all I'm interested is what goes on between the lines from uh, tip-off or kick-off uh, until the final buzzer sounds. That's it for me. I'm not like I am with pro sports where I just psychoanalyze everything, like I'm interested in the trends and the fates of the seasons and everything. For me, college sports is I'm just interested in what goes on because everything else, I'm not really, I'm not really into it. I, I don't agree with it. The whole idea of how you're a student and an athlete to me is we're just at the point where it's flawed now there's not really a whole lot of purpose in it 
one because the students that are admitted to play athletics don't academically qualify i know that's hard to hear for a lot of people but it's just the basic truth a lot of these athletes would not be admitted if they didn't bring the athletic skill to the university and so you give them the opportunity opportunity to pursue an academic degree while also playing athletics and of course having that option to play it uh, professionally at the next level and I'm just kind of of the believer now and today is a prime example that I'm just not really on board with if you're interested in, in becoming an athlete professionally that you should go the college route and I understand that really that's just the that's the avenue currently and I think that needs to change I think we just need to separate school and sport academy should be the primary option for those interested at 18 years old once they turn uh, of age to an adult that should be the route for them to pursue it and of course there's it's it's not as simple as that because who's going to fund it um you know obviously it would probably fall on the shoulders of that given sport organization whether we're talking about baseball football basketball what have you but it's just more conducive for everyone in my mind namely the athletes because these athletes are not showing up to get degrees. They're not interested in it. And really the coaches are putting the pressure on them to simply put athletics first. Now I'm of the believer that both are doable. Does it take a whole lot of work? Yes, but it is certainly doable to not commit, not commit academic misconduct and to work hard and get your degree while also putting in full effort on the athletic side. However, if your primary focus is that you solely just want to be on athletics, then I'm all for separating it from school and sport, not combining the two. Now, civic pride or, you know, community spirit, what have you, all those things are great and it's fun. I enjoyed it as well at Mizzou. But the idea that, like, this is working and that fundamentally the, pr the premise of how you get athletes to your school where you have to recruit and then they simply just say yes or no to you. Uh, there's no financial, um, there's no payroll, like true payroll. Obviously you have scholarships, but really it just comes down to the athlete saying, do I wanna pursue this degree here or there if that's important to him or do I want to go to this program to pursue professional career in my given sport? And that's namely what they're concerned about is is the latter so when there's no true payroll for constraints on how rosters are constructed not to mention the wide pool i believe it's 130 fbs schools there's just there's going to be complicit behavior and there's never going to be a true like fair system and that's why i think it's just time to separate and for those that get upset about it, the way I've gone about it, and I've done this probably for the last, I don't know, I don't, half a dozen years or so, I, I just don't consume the sport because I'm not interested in it and I don't believe it. I don't believe in how rosters are constructed. I don't even believe on the qualifying system for a championship, the way it's, it's a subjective um it's a subjective manner in which it's chosen but from a panel of people 
and that wins and losses are not created equal. And I won't dive too much into that, but just the entire premise of how not only do you play it on the field, but also how you construct your team is fundamentally flawed. And we're seeing it here with the warts because you got to these, these athletes not only have to go and give it their all on the field, but they also have to get done probably what they don't really care about, probably what their main focus isn't in that school. So solution is either to separate it or two, give it the option to the players because one, then you'll really find out if they're serious about school. Right now, it's just a requirement. They have to do it. So you see, you see them kind of shoulder the, the load to, to mentors, or not to mentors, um, to, uh, to tutors, excuse me, and they just have it do it for them. And then it gets themselves in trouble. It gets their schools in trouble. People lose jobs. It's bad. So if you give them the option and say, you can do this or you can't, if you want to pursue an academic degree, that's fine, and you'll be able to fully do that while also playing football, then that's great and you can do it. Or you can just play football and that's it. And of course, it would say the same, full scholarship. Um, they can award you that as an athlete. And of course, there's natural things like, don't get me wrong, it's not that simple. I'm just, it's the idea in my mind of how this would be better. Um, the, the number one thing is obviously the coaches would then go to them just to be an athlete. Don't pursue your degree, just play ball with me here. Uh, and I get that. And that could go one of two ways. Just my initial thinking, just here on the ground level. My initial thinking is that, okay, the coaches will do that and it will turn into a bad thing. Or we'll really find out about these coaches. Do they, do they care about them as guys? And we want them to succeed in the classroom and on the field. So you'll either, it'll be really bad and a storm will brew and then it'll just get out of control. Or you'll weed out the guys that don't care about them and they'll, basically honor the players that want to do academics and athletics. I'm, look, again, more complex than what I'm probably conveying right now, but it really is upsetting to me that we have situations like today, Thursday, January 31st in Mizzou. Um, this isn't me getting upset about them and their sanctions. This is me just being upset about college sports because this is what it is. And um, yeah, that's why I'm not big on it, more of a pro guy. And I wish this wasn't even the case. Okay, a bit of a stream of consciousness the last two uh, segments there. So, uh, yeah, if you enjoyed that, that's uh, that's kind of just been my feelings on athletes and what happened over with Mizzou uh, the last few days here and just my general opinion on athletes. But we're going to get into Super Bowl talk now. However, we're not talking about Super Bowl 53 this weekend. We're talking about Super Bowl 36 because this week I did my biannual. I do this every other year. I go back and I watch Super Bowl 36, Rams versus Patriots, and the greatest show on turf versus then the young Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. I've been doing this since 2015, and I do this because this was really one of my more distinct memories of Super Bowls, one of my very first ones. The very first Super Bowl I watched was Rams-Titans, but this is the first one where I just remember you know, zeroing in on the television and uh, watching the game. But of course, as uh, any eight-year-old, it's not like I'm uh, understanding everything that's going on. So I've gone back and I've continued to watch this game over and over, the full uh, full broadcast feed, and watch what's going on. Namely because this, of course, is the Super Bowl with a lot of conspiracy theories. And had 
a lot of effects, the outcome on two franchises. So great interest. I do this every other year, and this was a year that I was doing it, and how fitting with the Rams and the Patriots meeting up this Sunday. And I'm just going to talk about general takeaways from what I see here. And the first being the St. Louis Rams way ahead of their time. Wow. I mean, you want to talk about just prolific at the wide receiver position. Again, I was eight years old watching this, so it's not like I fully understood. I knew, you know, number 88 and 80 are great, but I didn't understand just how good they were and the depth on that team at the skill position. Marshall Falk, obviously great. Ricky Prohl, Oz Hakeem, Isaac Bruce, Torrey Holt. Just deep, man. Absolutely deep. And you see a lot of things that we see just run-of-the-mill today in NFL offenses. Um, you know, just some a few rub techniques I saw from Mike Martz there. Um, some really, like, sophisticated patterns that you don't see in today's game um, run from those speedy and just skilled wide receivers in the route running. So, overall, I just kind of saw ahead of, your, ahead of the curve um, in the Rams offense and you could see it even though in this game they didn't execute at a high clip you could just see the patterns that they're running out there and the concept so that was fun to see and kind of appreciate um, you know after the fact in hindsight um, but the you know the next is really just how how good the Patriots defended now the big thing in this game and this is St. Louis media and fans alike probably just still uh, you know gripping their belief that there was something uh, something scandalous about this win for the Pats. The belief is that, you know, they were, they were hitting our wide receivers illegally at the line of scrimmage. You know, they, they were holding our receivers. The officials didn't f- throw out the flags. And I watched this very closely. I watched it very closely, and I saw nothing really out of the ordinary. Um, but what I did see... That's what I saw. And let me tell you this. The Fox broadcast feed, and there was no All-22 tape back in 2002, okay? So any media member or fans, they're watching the Fox broadcast feed, what I was watching. And not only is it not high def, the angles that you get from Fox, nowhere near what you have today. So people that are out there saying they're holding our wide receivers, I don't know how you could really even tell. You know, I was watching this like, off every play, every play that was a pass play on the Rams offense. Very difficult to tell if they were holding their wide receivers. Okay, and what I could make out of it, I didn't see any holding. So that's that's one thing that they uh, a lot of people, you know, cling to to say that was, uh, you know, that was not right in that Patriots victory. And then, of course, the other is, you know, they taped the walkthrough. One of the big things in that has always been the Marshall Falk lined up at kick return. Um, and that happened shortly uh, before the end of the, the first half. And people say they taped the walkthrough. That's how they found out. Well, you know what? John Madden said he saw that at practice, at practice for the Rams prior to that game. He said this, John Madden, so obviously he was at the practice. He saw it. And as a media member, he has no um, responsibility to keep that private that he saw Marshall Falk lined up at kick return at a practice. And who knows if Madden said anything before the game to anyone about what he saw at that practice. Maybe he only revealed it at 
the live broadcast on that Sunday at Super Bowl. But it just goes to show you that the Rams showed it at a practice in which it could easily be communicated to anyone, and the Patriots, therefore, could have got a hold of it. Um, so I never really bought the idea that Marshall Falk was lined up at kick kick return for the first time, and you know, the Ram- or the Patriots game plan for that, and that's why they kicked it out of uh, to the corner and had Falk catch the ball, which then he tiptoed out of the bounds at the four, and the Rams eventually just knelt the football before the end of this uh, first half and uh, went into the locker room. To believe that's why it happened, it's like no, John Madden saw it, and he could have easily, just like anyone else that was there, he was open to the media. Obviously, if John Madden was there, it could easily be commuted to the Patriots what they saw. And then just continuing into the game, it's you know you look at it and you see a Patriots team that's not very good on offense. They scored 17 points off turnovers. Yeah, that's right. The Rams had three turnovers in this game, okay? Don't, don't forget about that. Warner with just a horrible decision to force a throw with pressure in his face. Ty Law picks it off. They get 7-7-0 seven, seven, into, uh, into the beginning of the game. And then there was a pro fumble lodged out after he caught the ball. Patriots uh, score on that from a uh, David Patton touchdown. And then there was a third one in which, and I will give you this, that maybe he was held, Torrey Holt, but he eventually kind of looks like he fell to the ground, but maybe his jersey was grabbed. And then Otis Smith, the cornerback for the Patriots, turns around and the ball's right into his arms. And uh, that was in the second half. And that's the third turnover. And the Patriots cashed in on every one of them, 17 points. And it's just it just goes to show you that none of these were like anticipatory plays by the Patriots where it's like, oh, wow, how'd they, how'd they make that play? Like, no, nothing shady about, you know, they were on to something prior to the play. This is so far just the Rams getting outplayed from the Pats. And not to mention, there was a fourth turnover. There was a fourth turnover with 10.09 left in the game. Warner's, you know, bulldozing for the end zone, fumbles the ball to Bucky Jones, picks it up, and takes it to the house. Would have been 24-3 to Patriots with 10 minutes left in the ballgame. But holding penalty on Willie McGinnis, he just wraps his arms around Falk. It's called back, and the, uh, the Rams eventually score to, uh, to be down by 7 at that point, 17-10 pats. So not only were there three turnovers, there was easily a fourth almost by Warner, negated by a holding penalty on the other side of the field. So they lucked out there. And I, I just break this down for you. I break this down for you in the fact that the Patriots' offense was playing ultimately conservative, conservatively. Rams' defense was just letting them have yards. They didn't bring any pressure into Brady's face. Didn't even really even attempt it, despite the fact that their offense was stalling and it was clear the Patriots were on to something. They just let them bleed the clock and basically ran out of time to really get ahead of them, their Rams' offense. The Rams' defense let them bleed the clock. Let them play their game. Didn't disrupt any rhythm and timing of the of the Patriots. It all just brings me to that they were outplayed, okay? And I understand it's not a popular opinion where I'm from, but I'm always going to be fair and honest. I'm going to be fair and honest, and I'm going to go back and watch Super Bowl 36 with a clear-eyed view. And what I see is a team that played at a high level, and another team that played at a low level. A lot of times, that's how wins and losses are determined, and that's what I see here, and I'm not one 
to say that taping a walkthrough did or did not happen. What I am to say is that I do not know, but what I do know is that Patriots were better on game day than the Rams 17 years ago. Okay, finally, Super Bowl 53. What I think is going to happen, Patriots are going to win it. Rams can win it, but I don't think they're going to. I, of course, I'll, I'll give you my score later on, right before the game. Just too many factors that go into that between now and the game. Things can change. It can affect everything. Uh, but this is what I'll give you right now. Largely, I think the Pats are going to win it because I think they hold an edge defensively to the Rams' offense. And that's all predicated on Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick does not, for as much as his game plans change, his defense remains largely the same. He disguises better than anyone what the Patriots are doing, and a lot of times that makes the offense, who the offense in football is active, it makes them reactive to that. Sometimes they'll change their play. Sometimes they'll anticipate this is coming, but then something else comes, knocks them off rhythm. The Patriots' defense is largely not... I wouldn't, I'm not going to say it's not complicated because it is, but it's largely predicated on cerebral processing and being reactive to the offense. So with that, I think Bill Belichick just holds an edge that with this Rams offense, where they don't run that many plays as far as quantity, what they do is they just change the play with a whole bunch of window dressing and make you think that something else is coming. I think that Belichick is just so skilled at breaking stuff down and breaking it down to his players and articulating it to them to where they can understand it and then putting them through situations of practice to where they can um, process it on the field. I think that they're going to be just fine, and it's why I kind of think it's got blowout potential. I really do. I could think this could be like a two-score game in the favor of the Pats, 14 points. Now, any Super Bowl, anytime you got one team from one conference, one team from the other, theoretically, good game. And we've had a lot of good games here recently. So, no, it's not going to shock me if it's going to be a close one nail-biter once again. But if I had to guess, I think it's going to be the Pats, and I think it could be 14-point break. Player of the game. I kind of I kind of do this every year. Um, not player of the game, but just kind of the breakout guy that maybe you're not thinking of. And I did a couple of years ago, pick James White. He had a great Super Bowl, 51. I think it could be Kyle Van Noy. And now maybe he's not exactly like that type of player because he's on the map. He had 10 tackles, two sacks, forced fumble against the Chiefs in the AFC Championship game. But he is a defensive player, and largely in today's game, the player that I'm kind of talking about, the one maybe you don't suspect to have a good game in this game, comes on offense. But I think Van Noy, all the responsibilities that he's going to have, he's probably going to have to jam some wide receivers at the line of scrimmage, knock off their rhythm. He's going to be coming off the edge for pressure. He's their best blitzing linebacker up the middle, which is going to be key against the Rams to uh, unsettle golf. I think he's just got a lot on his plate. He's going to have some coverage abilities or responsibilities as well. This is the player to look at and say when it's all said and done, man, that's a real player of the game. Obviously, the MVP award always just goes to like, uh, you know, the county stats guys, and it's typically always a quarterback, so that's understandable. But probably maybe the most like second impact guy, that's kind of, I guess, what I'm projecting here, it's going to be Kyle Van Noy. I think he's going to have to have a big day. Um, I think he will have a big day. Um, that's my player to watch. I think the Pats take this one. However, if the Rams win, which they very well could, it's going to be started um, by running the football. And that's going to be key from Todd Gurley on the outside. That's where probably the weakness of the Pats is, is on the edge and attacking the run game that way, making their linebackers run laterally. Because what the 
Patriots linebackers are is that they're big. Hightower, Van Noy, these are big guys. Anywhere from like 245, 260. They don't, they don't cover really well laterally. That's always been a weakness in what Belichick kind of constructs his roster from a standpoint on defense. But they're, they're pretty good, and I think that they will take care of business. But if Gurley starts to rush, it'll be because the offensive line is allowing that, and then the offensive line obviously is protecting well on the defensive front in the, in the passing game. So second guy to watch, if the Rams win, I think it's going to be the offensive line. Gurley will have the playmaking. He'll have the counting stats. It'll be a... Uh, It'll be engineered from the offensive line, uh, Andrew Whitworth, Saffold, and company. But lastly, you got to look at the officials in this, and this really could be a factor coming off what we just saw. I know it's going to be like, you know, officials largely in this game, they swallow their whistles, they just let people play. But after conference championship weekend, man, you can, the head of officiating, whoever, you know, controls the officials and instructs them, He's probably guiding them, saying, like, hey, look, treat it as just another game. You know, treat it as just any other Super Bowl if you've done that, whatever the guidelines are for Super Bowls. Don't worry about conference championship. Go out do your thing. But each of these guys are human. Each of them are human. They know what just happened. And they don't want to be the guy who throws the whistle aside at the wrong time. So th- this is something to think about. Like, normally I don't give a whole lot of credence to this stuff. But, th- like, this is real. And how the officials kind of call the game from the beginning could be an indicator on how things are done. But largely, you know, just looking at the the X's and O's and uh, schematic matchups and stuff, I see the Patriots in favor here, mainly on defense. I think they're going to take it. I think Kyle Van Noy has a big day. Could be as big as a 14-point differential. Okay, y'all, that's going to do it. Check me out on Twitter for the final score prediction. That's where I'll be posting, at Pete4C. You know the handle. Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, you can find me there. Give me questions, comments, whatever you're thinking. What am I missing here? What needs to be explored that I haven't talked about? Let me know. Update on iTunes. Apple fucking sucks. I don't get it. It shouldn't be this difficult. Whoever said they're efficient is a liar. Special thank you to Alex Harrington. Alex provided me with an Apple charger, the very old one from 2011. After mid-recording when mine broke, he's the only reason we're listening to this podcast now. Thank you, Alex. You saved the day. Enjoy the games this weekend, everyone. Have a great weekend.